0: You are all checked in now, so if you can just take a seat and the doctor will see you shortly. Right, okay, sir, I'm just going to get you to step on the scales for a second. Have you considered losing some weight out with your joint pain? A chasm is big. You can't be fat and happy. It's a
1: tea that you drink and it melts all your belly fat. All right, class, who can tell
0: me what a healthy snack looks like? Before we start you on treatment... We're going to need you to lose some weight. You'll never have a baby unless you lose weight. Thank you for waiting. The Fat Doctor will see you now. Welcome to the first ever episode of the Fat Doctor podcast. I'm so glad you've joined me today. I'm Dr. Natasha Larmy and many of you will know me as the Fat Doctor. Today I'm joined by my very own sister, Tanya Phoenix. She is a singer, songwriter, and storyteller. You'll find her on Instagram as Firebird in the Fig Tree, where she describes herself as short, fat, bald, barren, and bipolar. Mindfully single. Almost 40. Since this is my first ever episode, I thought it would be a great opportunity to introduce myself and to allow listeners to get to know me my family, my ancestry, and who better to discuss that with than my own sister. So without further ado, let's get straight to it. Hi, Tani. Thank you so much for joining me. I am super excited. My first ever podcast. Of course, who else would I ask to be on but you? So you're a fat person. I'm a fat person. Um, let's talk about that, shall we? It's almost like we have the same genetics. So we grew up in the same family, obviously. You are uh, exactly 19 months, is it? 19 months younger than me. I still call you my baby sister for obvious reasons. And I guess, yeah, we grew up in a very interesting family. And what do you kind of like remember about our childhood? What do you remember about growing up?
1: I remember feeling very different, different to other people, other families. I remember feeling like our parents' parenting style, I guess, was a little bit uh, different to others. It was a lot more critical, perhaps, than it should have been. But we're going to go into that a bit later, I'm
0: assuming. We come from a very interesting background and we are half Armenian. So dad's side of the family is Armenian. Mum's side of the family are Ashkenazi Jews. She was born in Brazil, but also lived in Israel and Germany and various other places too. You've always been the family historian and the one that knows all the family stories. So what do you remember about our grandmother? So our... Our dad's mum, our Armenian grandmother, like describe her because she is such an important person in our lives. I think my audience need to get to know her a little bit. How do you describe her?
1: She was kind of like the secondary caregiver, really. You know, after after Mum, it was her. She was always looking after us. Her role was primarily to spoil us rotten. I think that's how she saw it. She was just such a character. I just remember laughing a lot at all the weird things that she would do and say. She learnt her English from the television. You know, that was, that was always fun. Some of the expressions she'd come out with. Nothing quite like a, an old Middle Eastern woman (laughs) swearing like a trucker (laughs) because she'd learnt that off the TV. She spent a lot of time cooking. Food was massively important. I think she, she waited on us hand and foot, really. That was her, her, her biggest joy. She was also a dressmaker. So she sewed us lots of terrible, (laughs) terrible clothes I'm just thinking of some of the 80s fashions like the big puffball dresses and the sort of shiny ridiculous fabrics so yeah when she wasn't sewing us dresses or feeding us she was telling us stories the stories of our of our ancestors of our people and the the sort of hardships that they endured yeah which was pretty horrendous it's not the kind of story that you you would automatically assume was child friendly she didn't sort of seem to have any sort of ratings you know she didn't have like the U and then the pg and it didn't sort of kind of grow with us she just told us the sort of the 18 version from the very start. So yeah, a lot of terrible
0: war stories. We grew up. Uh, with the Armenian side of our family. They were the, the family that lived in the UK and that we got to see regularly. And I don't know about you, but I remember them being very, very body conscious and spending a lot of time talking about people's weight and commenting on people's weight. And I, I'm going to do an accent now. You know, I cannot remember our grandmother. We called her Memma, by the way, for anyone who's who's listening. We used to call her Memma, which stands for meds mama, which means big mama, right? Basically. <laughs> yeah. Big mama, Ahmed's mama, mama, she used to kind of almost greet us with with a comment or commentary on our weight. She'd sort of say, hello, Hokies, how are you? Aman, did you lose little weight? Or more importantly, did you put little weight? Because we used to put it somewhere. I'm not quite sure where we put it, but it was always, did you put little weight? I think you put little weight, hockey. Ah oh, man, did you put little weight? And that was basically like the soundtrack of my of my youth. And she didn't usually just say it about me, she used to say it about everyone. She used to say it about Princess Diana and um about all like her favourite soap stars and just you name it. It was I you know, I saw her, you know, she put little weight. What what was it like for you growing up hearing this commentary and, and more importantly, you have a lot of insight into this. Why do you think we were so focused the family was so focused on on weight and people's body image
1: well i think it was a lot to do with the position of women in in families i I think about our grandmother she wasn't allowed to drive she wasn't allowed to read um she had to leave school at, at 12 years old so she didn't have a proper formal education you know she had very little opportunity she wasn't allowed to work outside of the home. So when she was uh, given an opportunity to work in Harrods, actually, uh, she had to turn it down because our grandfather believed that a woman must stay at home. So she carried on making dresses out of her living room, essentially. And I think that this lack of independence, this lack of freedom and autonomy meant that women... You know, they just, they couldn't really say what they wanted. And and our mum, who wasn't Armenian, used to get really irritated by the fact that people would make subtle digs as opposed to just voicing what they actually want. But in their culture, it just wasn't allowed. You weren't allowed to say what you wanted. You had to kind of use guilt tripping or subtle manipulation in order to get the things that you wanted. And I think that this role as being very subservient meant that, you know, you were excluded from a lot of conversations. You weren't Having political conversations, for example, that was what the men did and they sat in the living room and the women would sit in the kitchen washing the dishes after the food that they'd just prepared and they would talk and what was there to talk about, what was safe for women to talk about. And as your currency as a woman and whether or not you were going to get married and have children, which was, you know, the be all and the end all, was so much to do with your appearance what else was there for these women to do but to sit and talk about their appearance and the other person's appearance and um, and she's so fat you know I don't think she's going to find somebody to love her you know there was all that conversation about you know this person and that person and what a shame and if she just lost some weight she got such a pretty face and maybe someone would marry her and there was just all that that pressure to to look a certain way and and therefore it was the only thing they could think to say. It was the most interesting thing that they could think to say was something about your appearance. And and it wasn't solely weight, you know, a lot of the time it would be, you know, the clothes that you wear, your hairstyles. You know, it it wasn't only weight. It wasn't exclusively people's weight. You know, sometimes it was the clothes that they wore, whether they'd sort of let themselves go, uh, that sort of thing. So it was just very appearance focused. And yeah, and I suppose the fact that weight came up so often was because Armenians generally are, are a bigger race of people you know, and I think that's to do with being diasporic, being genocide survivors. And food was such an important thing. And it's a weird dichotomy between food is so important and we have to feed our children so that they don't die there's ever some terrible genocide again. But equally, you have to look attractive so that you can find a husband. So, like, eat, 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 eat something, please. And then, a man you put little weight you must lose and and it was this kind of weird <laughs> you can't win either way you know
0: you were kind of alluded to something that's quite unusual in our in our family history in that both our sides of our family are genocide survivors in fact within the last 100 years genocide survivors so dad's side of the family the Armenian side of the family experienced the the Armenian genocide side of 1915 and we are you know we have family members our father's grandfather so our great-grandfather survived the genocide but almost died actually and escaped as a child and you can tell all the stories about that you know all of the stories about that but maybe we save that for another day mother's side our mum's you know, father and grandparents escaped Nazi Germany in 1939, you know. So we come from a very interesting family history where where survival, literally survival, was important. But but actually, anybody and whoever you are, if you've grown up in the UK, certainly you experienced a war within the last 100 years. In fact, you experienced two wars within the last 100 years. And food was scarce for such a long time. So we are growing up as products of, uh, like you said, you know, the great, great grandchildren of people who really were starving, and, and they didn't know when they were going to get their next meal. So food is very important. Culturally, it's important. Eating is important. And And eating because you never know where your next meal is coming from is actually kind of passed down from generation to generation. But as you say, on the other hand, we have this idea that fatness is ugliness and it, you know, it removes your worth. And as a woman, it it removes your value because then you're less likely to get married and have children and be successful in your life. And so that gets passed down to you as well. And you have these awful conflicting feelings. And of course, you know, we, we talked about dad's side and our, our grandmother our Memma, who was very important to us as you said but then of course there was mum who i guess was perhaps the most important woman not perhaps she was the most important woman in our lives as we were growing up and i guess she also had her own body images but she was different wasn't she like what what do you like if you if you could describe her how would you describe her
1: she was fiercely loving and fiercely critical, uh, both in equal measure. You know, you knew that she would jump in front of a bullet, you know, she'd run into a burning building to drag you out, but she'd probably complain how heavy you were and how fat you were on the way out. You know, that was kind of like, I love you, I'd do anything for you, but oh, if you could just change everything about you, it would be better. <laughs> that like, love and acceptance did not seem to go hand in hand with her and she was just constantly trying to
0: better us and improve us according to what she thought was was better my memory growing up the earliest memories I have of, of, of mum uh, as you say very loving very critical but were the way that she used to come up to me all the time and she used to pull my t-shirt down and you you pointed this out not too long ago that actually we didn't have much money growing up so a lot of our clothes would get quite tight and they wouldn't be replaced until you know they were impossible to put on anymore so we were offering in slight like sort of slightly undersized clothes as we were growing as all normal children do and I always had a bit of a stick out tummy because that was just the shape that I was and 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 that was the thing that mum was most anxious about, I guess, about herself. And so she used to come up to me all the time and pull my t-shirt down. And if my t-shirt ever rode up and showed like a slip of my belly, she'd get really upset. She'd like have a massive go at me and, you know, make me feel like, Crap, basically, and you know, you're a kid. You're playing, you're jumping, you're doing whatever you're doing, and riding your bike. And we just spent most of our life outdoors, didn't we? So we were hanging off trees, and it was natural that our clothes were kind of all over the place. And she used to really criticise me for that. And I am 40 years old. I'm still so ashamed of my tummy. Like it is the biggest sort of body shame that I have. The 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 largest area of my body that I despise, dislike. And I'm, I'm growing to love it. I'm growing. I'm trying to get over it, but it's taken me a really long time. I attribute that to mum. What was your experience? Did you think it was the same as my experience? Was your experience different to mine? What was it like being at home for you but with this very critical mum who, you know, had her own body image issues?
1: Yeah, I think just being younger was an advantage in the sense that you were always, you know, 19 months ahead of me. So you were always growing ahead of me. And relative to you, I always looked smaller. I mean, if we compare, we have compared, you know, seven-year-old you and seven-year-old me, there's not a lot of difference. Um, yes, our body shapes are a bit different. I'm a bit more of a pear and you're a bit more of an apple, but we are kind of basically the same size. But because I was always younger, you used to bore the brunt of it because you were the first to kind of grow. And so I think, you know, she was always focusing on you because you were always going to be bigger and older and, you know, that that much ahead of me. So I sort of escaped just a little bit. But also I think it gave me a perspective because I think I grew up with, with her criticising you. And because I loved you and thought you were, you know, the best thing ever, I uh, idolised my big sister. I think I grew up realising that she was wrong you know, if she then did that to me, I'd be like, yeah, but you're stupid. You're wrong. I never once thought that her, you know, estimation of your body was correct. And so therefore I didn't trust how she, you know, perceived mine. And I think also, you know, being different to to our mother, I don't particularly look like her. You always did. You were also the oldest girl. She was the oldest girl. There are a lot more similarities between the two of you. I was quite different. And so I think she didn't project a lot of her own you know, struggles with her own self-image onto me as much because I was I was a pair. She wasn't a pair. I had big bum and big thighs and yes she used to talk about my fat thighs and you know make me very conscious of them but I don't think she held them in the same well she didn't have the same level of disgust towards them and didn't hold them the same contempt as she did stomach because that was the part of her that she hated not her thighs her thighs were great to the end so so I think I, I sort of benefited from being able to stand back a little bit and be a bit more objective and yeah
0: not not always listening to her you of course though you you didn't have issues with your weight as much we always laugh about going to memma's house when we were younger especially over the holidays and uh, like half terms weekends sometimes our parents were desperate to ship us off so they used to send us to memma's house and she was just like the world's like biggest feeder, right? She used to feed us so much. And she used to take us to the corner shop and she just used to set us in there. She'd go, take whatever you like, cookies, take whatever you like. (laughs) We would just, we would, we would go and get whatever we liked, but you just like you were just you were li- you were literally the kid in the in, in the sweet shop you were just grabbing everything you could and you'd come home and you'd like eat it all and you'd, you never seem to feel particularly guilty about it but I think I always felt tremendously guilty about it and you know had this like I really want it but equally I don't want it
1: <laughs> I think it's also something to do with responsibility I think that because you were the oldest and you knew this was naughty in the sense that you knew that our parents would be so angry if they found out what was going on I think you you felt this responsibility of like, should I be stopping this? Because this is not what mum and dad would want us to do. Whereas I was like, yeah, they're not here. Who cares? Let's go. And I think that's, again, something to do with being younger and just being able to have fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I grew up feeling guilt and and being very conscious of of what was healthy, not healthy, what was good, not good. There was a lot of kind of moral sort of judgments that were passed on food and eating and how we ate and how often we ate there was a lot of sort of filthy looks across the <laughs> and across the dining table every time you took a second helping or you know there was a lot of punishment through food or, or you know you're not going to get this if you if you misbehave or you know or sometimes I will reward you with this particular food and and one of the things I remember about mum is that you know she'd have these really lovely chocolates to remember that Vilma who was our our sort of step-grandmother she used to send them from Germany, these gorgeous lint chocolates in those little boxes. And they were like wafer thin, but they were super tasty. And mum used to sort of get out the box of chocolates from the cupboard. And, and then there was like the flavours you didn't want, like the dark chocolate, which everyone was like, Bleh! And then there was always a milk <laughs> one and possibly like a hazelnut one. And, and then she sort of pick which one you got and maybe you'd get an extra one and like this chocolate box was so important but it wasn't a regular occurrence we didn't know if we were going to get it or if we weren't going to get it and and sometimes it just depended on her mood so we we kind of knew that it was a treat and we always wanted it but we never knew that we were going to get it so it was something that we had to try and work towards but you didn't quite know what the rules of engagement were so you you kind of tried to work towards it and you know didn't always get it and 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 food became like this really weird thing in our house and then we'd go to our grandmother's house and she would just be like, eat whatever you want, and you were just like, Yes, please, and I was just like, I don't want to get in trouble. And I feel like from a really young age, I was dieting. I was restricting myself, definitely. I mean, even when the rules were taken away from me and I got to enjoy myself at my you know at our grandmother's house, I didn't allow myself to enjoy myself. I, I, I didn't allow myself to have pleasure from food because I had so many kind of issues already i was dieting i was restricting and i genuinely believe now i mean over the course of our lifetimes how many different diets do you think you've been on me hardly any
1: i mean i have my my weight's gone up and down and i suppose i've been more or less conscious of what i'm eating and and my body at certain stages but i've definitely never been on an actual diet per se, whereas you've been on one, all of them. And I think about how young you were when you started. And I feel like your diets kind of coincided with our mother's diet. So I was thinking about the chocolate thing. And I think that when she allowed us to enjoy chocolate was when she'd sort of fallen off the wagon, as it were. And then she'd feel tremendous guilt about her own chocolate eating and be like, right, chocolate's off the table for me. And then, of course, it was off the table for us as children. So you ended up dieting with her You know, it might have been you know, spoken about very openly with you and you must mustn't eat that and you must eat this. But even inadvertently, if she kind of stopped buying certain foods because she didn't want them in the house, you ended up going on a diet with her. And I think that was probably why Memo was so fun, because she was always on a diet herself. She was always obsessed with her own weight, but she had this thing that children were different. So when we got older, she did criticize us you know, or or suggest that we lost weight. But as children, it was like, no, a child's different. A child should have fun. And I want to love them by giving them food. Whereas our mother was like, I want to love them by making them thin because then they'll have a better life. It was a slightly different, different thing. But certainly we ended up dieting with her
0: one way or another. It's interesting you say that because actually now I'm reading a lot of the research. I'm doing all of my own kind of like, you know, investigation into this subject. And what I found is that the evidence is very clear. Every time you talk about weight In a family situation, whether you're talking about your own weight as a parent or your child's weight, every time you shame somebody because of their weight or tease them, squeeze their tummy or, you know, call them chubby or mention their thighs or whatever it is that you do. And also every time you diet, whether you put your child on a diet or whether you're dieting yourself or whether your own diet impacts your children as it did with mum you are putting your children at risk of two things. One is disordered eating, which in itself can lead to eating disorders, but also you're putting your child at risk of weight, gain and childhood obesity. And the more you diet, the more likely you are to be fatter when you're older. And when we look at, you know, if you look at the two of us, neither of us are thin. I don't think either of us were ever meant to be thin. Genetically, we don't come from a thin family. There isn't a single thin person in our family unless they married into our family, right? We are just a whole entire family of big people but I'm definitely on the bigger side I think we were all we're all a little bit fat but I think I'm certainly fatter and I genuinely put that down to the fact that I dieted and you didn't and like even though you and I experienced that kind of restriction from our own mum you never sort of kind of allowed that to seep into your own life and into your own rules. So by the time we were older and we had more control over what we ate because we had our own money and we went to school and we chose what we ate, you didn't have all of these disordered eating behaviours, whereas I did and I was constantly restricting myself and I've done like you know you've been with me all the way you know all the diets I've done you know about grapefruit and you know that one that I did with cabbage which I can't remember what it was but there was like the soup one time and and definitely Atkins and a lot of removal of carbs and I think over the last 10 years you know I've kind of got rid of carbs completely from my diet eating carbs for the first time in the last six months has been a complete revelation but you you sort of never really bought into any of that stuff and even when I was doing it you'd always be that's nice but I still like a hot cross bun now and again or you know I I like my fruit I'm not quitting it (laughs) you know and stuff like that so you were always the much more sensible eater of the two of us and I think it shows in your body you have a body that that is just really comfortably where it's supposed to be.
1: Yeah I mean I think that the only times I've kind of gone up and down were, were more to do with my mental health than they were to do with a a desire to achieve a, a particular body. I think there was a very brief moment when I started singing where I thought that I needed to have a particular body. But even then, I just I think I've always just been a bit too lazy <laughs> to really commit to a diet. You know, I might sort of go, oh, I probably should lose a bit of weight, but tomorrow. You know, <laughs> <laughs> mañana. You know, like never really trying to to, to achieve it today. Yeah, it's far too much work. I mean, who wants to make all that soup? Like, oh, I remember all the liquidizing. It was, it was too much. I, I have no interest in that. I do think I have some disordered habits as well, but they sort of more rely on me, you know, sitting in bed and eating 12 packets of crisps. And ironically, when I sort of did those kind of crazy things and only eat crisps and chocolate and ice cream, I was actually the smallest I'd ever been. And it was because I was struggling with depression and crisps were the only thing that I could sort of manage because I didn't have to cook them or prepare them in any way. Um, But yes, ironically, that was when I was, um, you know, nine stone and a size eight. And
0: I remember that. I remember there was a more recent time, It's a few years ago now, where we all met up. And you were wearing a size 8 dress. You were so thin. I mean, now I look back and I, you know, you, you look really unwell. But at the time, everyone was just like, look at Tanya, she looks amazing. She looks so well. And you were in the midst of a depressive episode. And I'm, you know, you talk about this quite openly, but you have bipolar, and you have only started recently taking medication for it and having a an, you know a more formal diagnosis. So now you're on a much more even keel. Ironically, you're medication now is making you gain weight. So even though you're probably the healthiest you've ever been, no question, hands down, your mood is so much more stable. I know, you know, I feel much more relaxed about you. I don't worry about you in in, in quite the same way. But actually now you're finding that you gain weight because, you know, you can't help it. These medications are notorious for making you gain weight, but you are super healthy. And one of the things that you do is that you set an alarm on your phone. You make yourself eat, you know, regularly throughout the day so that you don't forget. You have your, like, 10 portions of fruit and veg a day because you're nuts like that and you you really take care of your health you exercise regularly you are you know you do it for your mental health more than you do for your physical health and i have noticed this massive improvement in you and yet you probably um well you're certainly not a size eight anymore (laughs) closer to an 18 than an eight do you mind talking a little bit, you know, about how your bipolar has affected you and your weight and your diet, etc., etc.?
1: Yeah, definitely. I'm yeah, I'm very open about it. I don't think that any health condition is something to feel ashamed of, regardless of whether it's mental or physical. And yeah, I think that the thing for me in terms of my weight and and my mental health is that when I've been smallest, as we've alluded to before, it's usually when I've been the most unwell. And ironically, when everyone's been the most happy and pleased with me. Um so it was a strange thing. I remember one time it was a vicar actually came up to me and he said, Tanya, you look marvelous. Tell me what is your secret? And I said, severe depression and staying in bed for two weeks. And he looked at me and didn't quite know how to respond because the assumption is that if you've lost weight, it's a good thing. But a lot of the time it isn't a good thing. You know, it, it might not be depression. It might be just being really obsessive and really controlling with food. It, it's not always a sign that you're in a good place. or well, it certainly wasn't with me. And yeah, when I've been depressed, I have literally spent two weeks in bed. I think I might have got up a few times a handful of times to go to the toilet and had maybe a handful of glasses of water and that was it i didn't want to eat i didn't want to exist you know the the concept of nourishing myself with food was was completely alien um and that was the worst episode of depression i've had normally when it's a little bit milder i just can't be bothered to go to the shops and i can't be bothered to cook and i just want something that's easy and will just fill me up but require no effort whatsoever so I went through a real Cornetto phase, mint Cornettos. I used to have one for breakfast and, <laughs> and I'd have uh, another ice cream. I think it was a chocolate feast. I'd have one of those for lunch and then I'd have a packet of crisps and that would be it. That would be me for the day. I mean, terrible. But probably in terms of calories, I was actually restricting and I was losing weight. But it, it wasn't intentional. It was just that those were the only things that I could persuade myself to eat because it felt like such an effort.
0: I always think whenever I hear that story that I always admire the fact that you – had something different you didn't just go Cornetto 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 you did Cornetto Feast and then Packet of Crisps and like I've, I've always thought at least you went for a bit of variety you know there was some variety in your diet um, you tried you tried um, and points for trying um, but no you you, you hit, hit hit the nail on the head when you were saying about how being thin and losing weight is not necessarily a good sign and certainly from a mental health point of view but also in our experience also from a physical health point of view and I I mean uh, we We still struggle to talk about this all these years later. But when I was pregnant with uh, my youngest, with your niece, whom he loves you more than she'll ever love me, I I had just developed gestational diabetes quite late on in my pregnancy, and uh, I'd had a miscarriage not that long before. And so was quite stressed and wasn't in a great place. And you and mum had some issues surrounding the fact that she disapproved of everything that you did, said, believed, you know, the way you dressed, the way you moved, basically everything. You just, well, you couldn't get anything right at the time. So it was quite stressful time I think in, in, in both of our lives and, and a, a slight not strained relationship because I think we had a, a good relationship with mum certainly in our in our adulthood but it wasn't the the best place for any of us to be and during that time mum was you know going to salsa classes and enjoying herself and having the time of her life and she was so happy because she was finally losing weight and she was just she was rejoicing about it wasn't she she was like do you remember that time when she like girls girls look and she pull her trousers down she didn't have to unbutton her jeans anymore they just slid down because she was just like lost so much weight around her bottom. I remember very distinctly that she had mentioned around Christmas time. So in December 2012, she had mentioned to me that she was getting some stomach pains and, you know, that's really weird, isn't it? And I said, oh, it is a bit weird, mum. Why don't you try some indigestion medication? If it doesn't get any better, you know, let me know. And then stuff happened and Christmas happened and, and then, you know, more stuff with my diabetes, etc., cetera, et cetera. And then we got to February and I came over with the kids and you weren't there, were you? It was just me and the kids that day. Were you at work? and um i walked into the house junior was with me i walked into the house and the kids were like yay hi and mum didn't look quite herself but I couldn't put my finger on it and then all of a sudden junior sort of pulled me to one side and said babes look at your mum i was like what about her he's like look at your mum she's jaundiced she's yellow and then i looked over at mum and i suddenly thought oh yeah she's yellow that's not good and that was February, mid-Feb. And by March, we'd had the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer and she died in July. And I I guess she was so happy about the fact that she'd lost weight that her own daughter, a GP, a doctor, very experienced for many years, did not put two and two together and think weight loss and abdominal pain in a woman in her 60s is never a good thing. She needs to see a doctor. And of course, in any other context, I would have done. But in this particular context, I was so happy for mum because she was so happy that she was gain- that she was losing weight. The- and-, and she didn't want to bother me because she never liked to bother people about their symptoms. So she obviously downplayed it a lot. And I didn't put two and two together. And I'm racked with guilt and probably will always for the rest of my life be racked with guilt, no matter how many people tell me it wasn't your fault, whatever. It doesn't matter. It it makes me sad that our mother was dying, that there was a cancer eating her up from the inside and she was rejoicing until the time came when she couldn't even walk. But, you know, 10 minutes down the road and you spent a lot of time with mum. Like, tell me your memories of that time and and if you don't mind, because I know it's upsetting.
1: I think I, I certainly remember rejoicing with her. You know, I think that when someone is so happy and and she wasn't just happy like this amazing thing happened to her. It was that she had earned it. Girls, I finally cracked it. You know, I've been looking after myself. I've been doing all the right things, which I have been for years. But all of a sudden it's paid off. And so because she was so well... And so, you know, thrilled and so active, you had to rejoice with her I and mean, what could you say? I'm, I'm not proud of your achievement. And, and I think at that time, we really did believe that, that health and thinness was an achievement and that it should be celebrated. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm also wrapped with guilt about it. And I remember just how quickly she diminished you know she got smaller and smaller and smaller and you know that that thing that she celebrated in the beginning ended up being something that she hated at the end i remember sort of i, w- I was caring for her and i was sort of helping her in the shower and and all that sort of stuff um which she said that she'd never let her children do but We ended up doing it. I wanted to do it. I remember her looking at her reflection in the mirror and she was tiny, the smallest she'd ever been. You know, this was her dream. She'd finally achieved it. remember her looking in the mirror and shaking her head. I often talk about the fact that my mum hated everything about herself. She hated the fact she had red hair. She hated the fact that she had terrible teeth and receding gums. She hated the fact that she had freckly skin and and lots of skin cancers due to sun damage. She hated um, the benign kind, but still, she hated it. She hated her body. She hated everything. And then she had this one thing about herself which she thought was okay, which was her boobs. And I remember she's looking at her tiny, tiny body in the mirror and her boobs have disappeared. They've just gone because they're made of fat. So of course, they're going to disappear. And she just went, I've not even got those. What's the point? And it was almost like she had this awareness that had she lost all that weight, you know, that she'd always been wanting to do, actually, she wouldn't really like or recognize the person that she saw. And, you know, this time it was because she was dying. But, you know, had she had a bariatric surgery or something to like, make the weight disappear. You know, she always assumed that she would like what she saw and she didn't. And yes, of course, she also didn't like it because it was a sign of her frailty and her illness. But I think just aesthetically, it wasn't what she thought it would be. It wasn't this beautiful, you know, she didn't suddenly turn into Jane Fonda. You know, she was just a really, really small, frail, diminished version of herself. And she looked better, fatter. And I think maybe she realised that too late, too late to enjoy the fat body that she'd hated all her life.
0: That felt that right in my gut. It's such an important thing to say because I have to keep reminding myself. Actually, I think that's got to be my new mantra: is like don't don't leave it too late to enjoy the fat body that you have. I think fatness isn't about looks. It's not about aesthetics. Certainly for me, um, I, I don't think I don't. I don't put that much value in aesthetics. I don't put that much value in the way that I look. Like I, I've never been one that that sort of wanted to be on the cover of a magazine or you know, cared much about what other people look like either. You know, I always saw beyond the superficial, and I could see beauty in people not because of the shape of their eyebrows or the symmetry of their face or, you know, the perfect sort of hourglass figure. I always saw beauty in other people because that beauty kind of radiated from the inside out. And actually mum's beauty did. She was a very attractive woman, but not because of her face or her skin or her hair, but just because she was a really attractive woman and she attracted people wherever she went. And, you know, I'd love to be able to have this conversation with her. Of course, we don't get to, but I'd love to say to her, what was it about fatness that bothered you so much. And I think for mum, part of it was because she associated it with her own mother and her own mother um, had mental health problems also. She had schizophrenia. She wasn't particularly capable as a mother. There was a lot of issues there. And her mother gained a lot of weight as a result of her medication and also her lobotomy. So she associated fatness with, with, with mental health and with, um, with the horrible experiences of her childhood. So I think that was an issue. But I also think it's about value. Fatness equates more than beauty. It equ- equates to sort of, you know, or thinness, I should say equates to value and i talk about like the the currency of thinness I i actually genuinely think of it now as a currency like it's it's not just something that sells you to potential suitors you know if you want to attract a partner better to be thin. That's one thing that it buys you, but it also buys you so many other things. It, it buys you favor in the workplace. It buys you, you know, better jobs, better job prospects. Thinness gets you a better job. It, it gets you favor in the classroom. It buys you favor amongst friends. It buys you, you know, more likes on social media. Like financially, you do better if you're thinner. Like, I've realised that thinness isn't just about looking good because actually when mum finally got to be thin, she didn't look good at all. It's about what that thinness represents. It's about finally making it. Like you said, she had achieved something. She'd finally done it. She'd finally lost the weight. It's about proving to the rest of the world that you're good enough that you're worthy enough, that you manage to do the thing that everyone else struggles to do. And the problem is that people have been lying to us for the last 50 or so years. They've been telling us, you need to lose weight, you need to lose weight, you need to lose weight. And we've all bought into that. 100, 200 years ago, nobody told people to lose weight. (laughs) Like that was ridiculous ridiculous. No one was saying to people 200 years ago, you should probably lose weight. That is the surefire way to get somebody killed is to tell them to lose weight because you're not going to survive TB or cholera or, you know, name any illness, measles, mumps, rubella. You're not going to survive it. If you're skinny, you have to be fat to survive. And yet... For the last 50 years, lose weight, lose weight, lose weight. It's the only way to prove that you're a good person, that you're not greedy, that you're not lazy, that, that you have self-worth, that you that you're not, you know, not lacking in willpower. All of those things are a lie that was meant to us by a capitalist society that is really only interested in making money out of us. And every single one of us, our mother included, has bought into that lie, hook, line and sinker. Whether it was our grandmother um, sitting around in the kitchen, cooking her meals and commenting on Princess Diana's body, whether it was our mother who just couldn't handle the fact that her children gained weight, whether it's our friends and whether it's myself, you know, as well, myself included, we bought into that lie. And that lie has basically controlled our lives for so long that we've never really got to have freedom. And the moment mum had her freedom, it was snatched away from her because she died a terrible, horrible death in such a short space of time. She got to be thin for like a month before she got sick. And you're right. You said it perfectly. I am not going to waste my life. And, you know, by not enjoying the fat body that I have, I have to learn to enjoy this fat body and just ignore what the world is telling me. So really, this is why I'm, I'm making this podcast. And I'm so grateful that you're here and that you've come on and you've spoken with me. And that we've been able to share the story of our family and that everybody has got to know my amazing sister because, you know, let's face it, you are the cooler one out of the two of us. Um tell everybody before we go a little bit about yourself and what you're doing to challenge beauty standards because you do a lot of stuff you have a lot of experience so tell us about it
1: so I've been really interested in the sort of stigma and the discrimination that people experience as a result of looking different looking other whether that's because they live in a bigger body or if it's something else and I've probably been interested in it since I began working for Changing Faces I worked there for two years and I learned such a lot from that charity it represents people with disfigurements. And I learned about the, you know, the fact that people who have a disfigurement are subjected to bullying and harassment on a, on a regular basis. And the things that people say, they are uh, excluded and precluded from from certain jobs. They are just generally treated uh, uh Much less favorably than, than other people. And I began to be really interested in the beauty bias and how people who, you know, conform to society's beauty ideals, you know, have just an easier time and a, and a better, better life. And it's not fair. It's such a a unfair system. It's an inherently racist system. As, as many people have said, it's an inherently ableist system. I know how people treated me when I had my fake hair put in my extensions and I had lost that weight due to depression and people treated me better suddenly experiencing favor you know when it came to just being served at a bar or served in a restaurant or you know just walking down the street people were nice to me in a way that they hadn't been before you know I've also experienced people rolling down a window and shouting oi fatty or you know commenting on 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 my you know bald head like I've I've had both sides and I see that it is just an unfair system I'm the same person and at one point in my life I was I was given favor and and the bias was was working you know in my interest another time in my life it's been against me and you know that's an incredibly unjust system and I think that you know, there are there are two things that need to happen. I think that people who are kind of perceived as having less value by society because of their body or their face or their hair have to stand up and start saying, no, that's not okay, have to start accepting themselves and forcing other people to see them as, you know, not this pitiable or, or this, you know, laughable thing that actually, you know, you can embrace your fat thighs, you can embrace your big tummy, you can embrace your bald hair and, you know, your dodgy skin or what you know, whatever it is that people are picking on you for. So I think that's the first thing, you know, the people at the bottom have to kind of rebel and I think that also what has to happen is that the people at the top who are, you know, in positions of power who the system has benefited that's why they're there, I think they have to start to accept responsibility. I always say that, you know, when you have privilege, you also have responsibility that goes with it and I think that there is a responsibility to dismantle that system, to say, you know, what I am at the top of the food chain because I've got a really nice face and a really nice body according to today's Eurocentric standards of what beauty is, and that was just luck. You know, I came out of the womb with this skin colour, this face, this hair, this body. You know, yes, I may have done X, Y, and Z in the gym, but ultimately. I was born with a body that didn't have illness and didn't have disability and I could go to the gym. I had time and money and you know all those things that you acknowledge a privilege and you go, actually, why are people saying that I'm worth more than somebody else who's just had it harder in life? That's not fair. And the people in the top need to do that. But I think that there's li- little incentive because obviously they're benefiting from the system that's putting them at the top. If you're, I mean, I'm always picking on him, but if you're Chris Hemsworth, You've literally been born into this body that people would describe as being, you know, carved by the gods and your face. And you've still got a full head of hair in your 30s. I mean, like life is good for Chris Hemsworth. Why would he turn around and go, okay, well, the beauty bias is wrong. You know, the fact that you love me and think I'm a great actor predominantly because of the way I look, is wrong. You know, is it in his interest to do that? Will he ever stand up and say it? And I think ultimately, maybe, you know, if enough of us at the bottom make enough noise, then the people at the top will have to start to notice. My responsibility, I feel, is to recognise the areas that I have my own privilege and to try and help those who maybe haven't, you know, had the same privilege, but also to make a lot of noise about the pl- the things in my body that I've been taught to be ashamed of and just to be like, no, you know, you can tell me that I need to shave my legs. You can tell me that I need to put fake hair on. You can tell me that I need to lose weight, but I'm going to come back at you each time and say, you are wrong and I'm not going to do it
0: and you can't make me. Amazing. Tam, you are an incredible, I have already mentioned at the beginning of this, but you are an incredible story writer. You write beautiful children's books. One day they are going to be published. I mean, honestly, I don't know why people haven't been beating down your door already to publish these books. They're amazing. And they are perhaps some of the most body positive books I have ever read, it's for children. So I'm super excited to see where you go with that. And you're writing under Beatrix Phoenix Writes, and that's your Instagram handle. Um, You're also on YouTube. And so anybody, whoever you are, you can go and watch these videos either on Instagram or YouTube. If you're a teacher, you can use them to teach in classrooms. Hopefully support TAN and those books will get published. And then when you're not writing books, because obviously just writing books would be... (laughs) just not enough for some people. And so you're also a singer and songwriter and um, have an incredible Instagram presence, which I personally credit myself with because I am the one that told you to go on Instagram. So it's all thanks to me. Thank you very much. But no, you have an amazing Instagram presence. You talk about a lot of these issues and I love what you do. and, And then, you know, you also sing for us on the regular basis, which is beautiful. And you are a fantastic singer and always have been. So thank you so much for joining us tash um
1: i'm always going to be your number one fan and uh i'm very excited to be on your first ever podcast so thank you for having me
0: thank you for listening to this week's episode you can find out how to connect with all my guests and join my private facebook community friends of the fat doctor all the information is in the show notes and i hope you'll join me next time